This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Strange Landscapes. Nikolai Vavilov. Climactic Sequences. And the Denver Airport. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' Mini Mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies Cliffward, The Big Red God, and The Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of Mini Mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But the dice are a thousand feet tall, the miniatures are macrodatures, and Peter Frampton's head is devouring the galaxy because we are in a visual landscape episode of the gaming hut because Elias Helfer, Patreon backer, asks... Ken compares the visual landscapes of Doctor Strange to Inception, but how do you do magnificent and weird landscapes like that in a role-playing game? Robin? Uh, well, I guess you have two tools at your disposal. One of those is words, and another is images. And so, first of all, I've uh, sometimes described the characters winding up in a weirdo Steve Ditko CGI uh, landscape. And uh, just uh, do that with those uh, good old-fashioned phrases and stuff. And so, for example, in a, a Feng Shui session, there was a moment where the uh, a sorcerer uh, sort of threw them all into an Escher dimension. And so that gives you a, a sort of a, uh, you know, do you just say Escher staircases? And that gives them the uh, immediate visual image that they can uh, go through. And then as you describe all of the uh, punches being thrown and uh, bullets being fired, uh, in the course of a uh, action sequence, in this case, the cinematic action of a Feng Shui game, or, you know, you can easily imagine a sequence of Inception where they're running up and down Escher staircases, if they maybe already do, um, you just describe it that way. So, uh, you know, you're running up uh, one staircase and you get hit and you go flying back into uh, uh, another staircase and uh, all of a sudden you're upside down and then the uh, the railings are encircling you and they're coming toward you and now they're vines and now they're twisting into a, a spiral shape and all of a sudden you realize you're a fractal and, and that's how you do it, right? And so yeah. uh, what you can then do is encourage your players to start describing the environment as well. And so it can be an act of collective imagination because the thing about a, a, a Ditko landscape or, an, or you know, the inceptionizing of a uh, actual photorealistic city block or something is that, you know, it's ever shifting and ever changing. So unlike, you know, a dungeon room, you're not locked down to saying, oh, well, the brazier's here and over here's the staircase and so forth that you can all just start to spitball all of these crazy images. And it doesn't matter if you're not all imagining the exact same trippy thing because of course you're never imagining the exact same dungeon room. You are in a mind-altering vista 30 parsecs by 30 parsecs. There are exits to the north and west. Yeah. <laughs> and then when necessary, you can describe the little cool bits of things that have a, a tactical advantage or, or disadvantage or what have you. Yeah, I think one of the keys to the, talking about that you, you, that you touched on, letting the players co-create and especially letting them co-create bits that have tactical or mechanical advantage because you want to reward them for getting into the crazy messed up universe of that uh, Ditko vision or that inception vision. And 
their reward will be some advantage that they can get. And so if they say, well, when the antenna of the building bends down towards me, can I grab it and do a backflip off? Your answer should be absolutely not. No, it's still a hundred feet away. Unless the goal is to emphasize that, no, it is actually much physically larger than you thought it was when you said that the buildings start folding over on you. So I think letting the players co-create is super important, providing sort of uh, anchor points in the sense that, you know, if you begin by saying you're looking out over Paris and you see the lights on the Eiffel Tower and they begin to rise up almost as though the Eiffel Tower itself is rising up like a rocket. But no, look, the bottom of Paris is pulling up with it. Paris, it's it's all self is being pulled up like like a handkerchief being pulled up off a table by an illusionist. And so you sort of have to capture that point of what's happening, but you give them a, an immediate anchor point so that they can sort of begin a visualization with something that they can visualize, not walk in and say, you're in a trippy Ditko spacescape full of purple blobs and floaty orange polygons. And that doesn't actually provide you anything because people are just sort of, you know, saying, all right, whatever. Um, I'm waiting for the actual, you know, part I care about to show up and you need to provide a, an immediate visual hook. So if you're going into a trippy Ditko uh, starscape full of purple blobs and orange polygons. You say, as you walk o- over the surface of, th- of the ground, it begins to fall away from you and you're floating in a purple lit, uh, interstellar void. But there is a, um, uh, a, a spiraling ball of what looks like melted wax. But if your, uh, eyes haven't deceived you, it's melted wax on a scale of parsecs, not of feet. And it's unreeling over your head. But when you reach up toward it, your hand seems to expand and you can almost touch it. And now you're like, okay. This is messed up. The geometry is all screwed up. We can't trust anything, but I know that there's this big purple spirally thing in the middle, and that is where you can start relating. And so the orange pyramid comes out from the left side of the purple spirally thing, and the giant green head of, of, of Dormammu or whoever comes out from below you or something. So everything has to relate to a, uh, to a place so that when they imagine it, they can imagine something that gives them a visual response and they can say, Oh, can I hide behind the purple thing from Dormammu? And they're like, yeah, I think maybe you could cause it's parsecs long. Yeah. And what you've been doing there, uh, dear listener, take note is relating the physical relationship uh, between the character and the landscape at all times and the shifting of that. So that tie it into movement and where the character is and what the character can do. Because if you're just describing a crazy landscape, but you're not orienting the point of view of the character or suggesting through what you're describing things that they could do, right? That the, if reality has completely turned into a sack of noodles, you need some sort of reference point that then suggests a choice of what you could or or couldn't do. So, you know, you are uh, stuck in these uh, red uh, pulsing sort of cilia things that are uh, uh, anchored to little asteroids and, uh, coming toward you is this weird coruscating conical shape with uh, with eyeballs uh, sort of swirling around it, orbiting it like suns. That gives the player a choice of about three different things that they could do. It's like, well, uh, they could worry about freeing themselves from the cilia that are holding their ankles, or they can say, well, can I just ignore the cilia and kind of fly with them still stuck to me and head toward the cone? Or do I... Uh, somehow uh, can I reach out and even though it seems like an impossible distance away, can I reach one of those orbiting eyeball things and squish it in my hand? Is that something I can do? So that you're suggesting possible actions that the character can take and so your description is not just uh, a series of visual references of something that uh, Steve Ditko would have drawn but rather a series of choices that they can make And once they imagine themselves in that environment and being able to affect that environment, then it becomes interesting. Because if you're just at the part where, okay, yeah, Paris folds up like a napkin and you're watching it all collapse, it's, well, what do I do? And then you're swept up into it over the other side and this happens. Yeah. And so uh, make it a series of events rather than just a description of an environment. Or you can even say you can see the handkerchief of Paris rolling toward you as you stand there on the Montmartre, what are you doing? And you're like, well, I'm going to jump free so that I can be in the air. Or you're like, I'm going to try and teleport out of Paris, or I'm going to go inside the Moulin Rouge and hide or whatever it's going to be. You have a response that you can make to the activity. Uh, One of the things that happens in Dr. Strange, of course, is that uh, these backdrops happen as backdrops in which the real thing is actually you're just fighting bad magicians. So if the goal in the game is you're fighting the, the Eagle men, the fact that it's a big, trippy, ditko backdrop is maybe less important than the fight 
against the eagle men. So your job is to make the backdrop tactically valuable, just like you would the things that are in a warehouse if you're fighting mafia guys in a warehouse. So in a warehouse, you're like, can I hide behind a crate? Can I pick up a, a crowbar and whack a guy? Can I swing on one of those chains that uh, the pulleys use to move the crates around? And so you're always thinking, can I get up on a catwalk and shoot down? And so once you start thinking of that warehouse as part of the environment, you make a warehouse fight better. Similarly, if you can provide elements of the Ditko verse that will make the fight against the Eagle men better, then that will bring that backdrop into enough focus, not necessarily the foreground, so that the players can enjoy the fact that they're fighting Eagle men, not in a mere hex field, but in an exciting Ditko hex field and things can go wildly awry. So maybe they're saying, okay, I maneuver so that the Eagle man is coming at me against one of those glowing sun eyeballs. And maybe that makes it hard for him to see. And if you're the GM, again, the answer should always be yes. And, or uh, only very rarely. Yes. But, um, and you shouldn't shut people down in a Ditko space. Um, because then where would you be? You'd be like the people who shut Ditko down and you wouldn't want to be Stan Lee, would you? So, um, <laughs> yeah, then you have the question coming around spouting Ain Rand. Yeah, that. that's awesome. Anyway. Um, so it was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try and get the Eagle to flight, uh, Eagle man to fly towards the eyeball. And so he's not able to see me. Um, I'm going to, uh, dodge around the side of the cone. I'm going to try and, uh, get down into the cilia and, and ambush him as he swoops by on a dive. I'm going to use this weird Ditko environment to, inform the fight and then the eagle men also are like oh a bunch of the eagle men are grabbing one of the eyeballs and throwing it out of out of orbit towards you or the eagle men are um uh, down in the cilia now and they're huddled up and you can't really see what they're up to or the eagle men have reached down and they've emitted an eagle cry and when they do so the cilia breaks apart like glass and begins hurtling towards you what do you do so you always have that weird backdrop as part tactically of the fight uh, and making it available, as I think we suggested at the top of this segment, to the players to co-create and, at the very least, co-involve themselves in. Other things that your characters can do in a surreal environment are uh, just try to move from point A to point B, where, you know, your goal is to get to the uh, the spinning orb up in the vast distance, and you're on this sort of uh, swirly tendril thing. How do you get from uh, successfully from A to B over what series of steps? And that's where if you can, you know, find an image of a cool trippy landscape, whether it's a matter of, you know, freeze framing a still from the DVD of that, of the Doctor Strange film or, you know, nicking a surrealist painting or a Hieronymus Bosch uh, vision of hell or, or, you know, even a scientific photo, a close up of, you know, uh, water diffusion of one color of water diffusing in another. And then, you know, it's okay. So how do you get here? And what are the different athletics tests that you have to make to get from this point to this point? Or do you, um, or is there sort of a series of puzzles or do you have to send, spend, uh, soul points in order to, you know, this, um, you know, getting from the mushy thing onto the big hammer is, uh, is a, a physical test, but then passing through the portal that, uh, uh, blocks uh, the way from the hammer into the sort of the, the rainbow coruscation. Well, that's a test of your soul. And then there's a mental test coming up next. So it could be sort of a series of, of challenges to get there. Or you can just look at it as a series of survival challenges where things are hurtling at you and you have to dodge them or find different ways to deal with them. And, uh, you know, if it's a complete head trip, it could be that, you know, this you know, flaming asteroid that's coming your way represents the anger that you're unable to properly assimilate after the uh, incident that set you on this road to vengeance. And so there's some sort of, you know, metaphorical transformation that your character has to make in order to, uh, you know, not be destroyed by the uh, uh, flaming uh, bit of whatever. And, and no matter what you're doing, it helps, I think, to just come up with a bunch of bullet points ahead of time of all the different crazy things that you can describe in an unreal landscape, because unlike a real landscape, you're eventually going to run out of, well, it's another glowy Ditko-y thing. And so, you know, come up with more specific little uh, phrases ahead of time that you can sort of tick off as uh, as you go through the list of different things that, that can happen uh, in this weirdo environment. And my final tip would just always be to have a sense of stakes, because uh, if you're doing unreal things in an unreal environment, eventually you're going to detach and stop caring and, you know, losing hit points or some other resource. Well, that, that is a set of stakes, but, you know, keep in mind, you know, why are you stuck in this Escher landscape? What, what, how 
what happens if you don't get out of it or if you don't get out of it fast enough. So uh, always keep in mind what the, uh, the need is to engage with this crazy uh, universe, if only to escape it and get back to the real world. So I think speaking of running out of weird, dikui, cilia things, we may have done exactly the same thing. So it's time for us to uh, get on the walkway of uh, pulsating tongues and move to our next, hopefully, somewhat more normal-looking segment. Hey kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time once more to check the old files, head down into the deep, chilly basement where the uh, old espionage dossiers are filed, because... Uh, this time we're re-entering the tradecraft up, but we don't need any uh, fancy-schmancy retinal scans. Uh, fortunately, we don't have to reference any uh, current events, which will no longer be current by the time this banked episode airs, because uh, guess what? There's all sorts of stuff going on in the real world of espionage that'll be totally different. But this stuff will still be just as true when you hear it as when we say it, because uh, Patreon backer Alex Johnston has asked our uh, resident espionage expert, who of course would be Ken, to explicate the story of Nikolai Vavilov and the Nazi biopirates. And when you uh, dig into this, it's really, of course, more Nikolai Vavilov versus Nazi biopirates. And uh, as I did my cursory research on this, uh, I mostly just saw a bunch of real history about uh, uh, botany and preserving uh, seed lines and... uh, uh, a, a conflict between Vavilov and a, a, a German officer named uh, Heinz Brucker. But Ken, in your exhaustive research, I'm sure that you've found the real story uh, behind this. So uh, I guess start by telling us who uh, Nikolai Vavilov was. Okay, uh, Nikolai Vavilov uh, began as a Russian botanist and became a Soviet botanist, as so many people do. When announcement goes out that says, hey, you're all Soviets now, yeah. <laughs> what happens whether you like you it can, or not? You can either become a Soviet botanist or a French botanist. Those were the two choices at the time. Right. Nikolai or Vavilov... you be buried under some botany. Yes. Chose, uh, chose poorly uh, because he chose Soviet botany. A uh, friend of the show, Darcy Ross, will be glad to know that his doctoral dissertation was on snails. Um, uh, he also studied mushrooms. It was at the Bureau of Mycology in, uh, in Moscow. Uh, so he's got already your tied into your, your Migo if you want him to be. Um, and he was there almost at the creation of the science of genetics because he was traveling around Europe in 1913 and 1914 when it was being put on a pay in basis, as they say. Uh, after the, uh, switchover to Soviet botany, he was the director of the All Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Leningrad. He began to study um, uh, wheat and corn and cereal crops because it turns out when you're a Soviet botanist, there are priorities such as 
helping to prevent the worst effects of being run by the Soviets on the wheat crop. Yes. Please compensate for our uh, brutal incompetence <laughs> by uh, making wheat easier to make. Yes. Um, he, uh, he committed a second classic error in not having Trofim Lysenko sent far away from him. When he met him, he said, I like the cut of your jib, Trofim Lysenko. Keep studying stuff. And sure <laughs> enough, in 1940... When they asked him, what do you think of Trofim Lysenko's uh, notions of crazy Lamarckian genetics? He said, well, I'm only the head of the All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences. I'm just a country botanist, but they be crazy. And so he's tossed in a gulag. He was sentenced to death in 1941. Uh, in July of 1941, when you'd think the Soviets would have other things on their mind, but in fact, they did not. He was on an expedition to the Ukraine looking into wheat and other Ukrainian crops. And uh, his death sentence was commuted to life in a gulag and life in a gulag, as it did for most people, and ended about a year later when he died of starvation. So that is the story of Nikolai Vavilov, a short and glorious life cut shorter by the Soviet botanist half of his life. But he is interesting to people because one of the things that he did in Leningrad was set up a seed bank, which had seed samples of all manner of different plants from all over the world. There were like a quarter of a million uh, different kinds of seeds. They were all jambled up there and they were stored in the art museum in the Hermitage. And sure enough, no one thought to move them out of Leningrad before the Nazi siege of Leningrad began. And much to the credit of the members of the uh, all union Academy of agricultural sciences, they did not eat the seeds and potatoes and things that they had stored there. They kept them safe, even though uh, many of them died, of course, of starvation during the famine. So if you are counting, we are now at 10 people who die of starvation during the career or under the immediate influence of this guy. Uh, not his fault. All the fault of Nazis and Soviets. Yes. Uh, a man specializes in food production and uh, he and uh, everyone around him starts to die of starvation. Yes. It's as if there's a dark star influencing his destiny. An occult hand, if you will. And speaking of occult hands, as I mentioned, he was off in the Ukraine when he was arrested. So many of his uh, sort of traveling samples, his traveling plant library were still in the Ukraine and in the Crimea when he was uh, out there in 1940. They also were not moved, much like the seed bank in Leningrad. And this, uh, the Nazis uh, came pouring through the Ukraine. And when they came pouring back the other direction through the Ukraine, uh, they sent Heinz Brucker who was a botanist, uh, who began, I guess, as a imperial German botanist and became a Nazi botanist. <laughs> because if, if they announced, we're all Nazis now, guess what happens? Guess what happens? But he was in the Ananerba, one of their uh, botany specialists, and was ordered to go find the Vavilov seed banks and take them back to Germany. And so he did. And so that would be the biopiracy. That would be the biopiracy, as previously mentioned. I do feel bad that we're not going to have a cool... Uh, Mel Brooksian uh, rearing horse sound every time we say Heinz Brucher, because I feel like you should. But there you go. Um, he moved them back to, I, I want to say Lamach is where he moved them to in uh, Germany. And uh, the, the, we don't know what he moved there because he kept sort of Ananerba records. <laughs> he was ordered by the uh, Nazis to destroy his stolen bio stuff and refused to as well. So the um, uh, Soviets recaptured that portion of the Vavilov arc, uh, plant archive, um, seed archive in uh, Lanark when they rolled through. And then, as they say, he emigrated to Argentina shortly thereafter um, uh, and became a professor of genetics and botany at the University of Tucumán. He uh, visited Sweden, uh, hung out with Sven Hedin, who was a Nazi sympathizer, Ananerba hero, and the guy who went into Central Asia on one of the many mysterious expeditions into Central Asia, Sven Hedin, seems mostly to have been interested in carrying out uh, priceless and irreplaceable Buddhist scriptures, less so magic seeds. That was more of a Nicholas Rorick thing. But you can certainly begin to sense that there is a secret magic seed war going on. Uh, going all the way back to the 20s and then up through Vavilov and Heinz Brucker's career. Uh, Brucker goes off to Argentina. We don't know what he brought with him back to Argentina. We don't know what he paid the Swedes to uh, be allowed to uh, snake out of uh, Germany. And we don't know what he was up to in Paraguay. He went up into Paraguay when even Argentina became too anti-Nazi for him. And uh, he even visited Leningrad just 
to be a guy, I guess, during a weird moment in the 60s, because the 60s are full of weird moments. Finally, in 1991, at his farm uh, in Mendoza, where do I want to say that is? Mendoza, Argentina, he is murdered, apparently or officially by a burglar, but possibly by anyone who doesn't like Nazis or anyone who doesn't like botany or possibly by the Colombian or uh, South American cocaine cartels who are worried that he was working on a targeted anti-cocaine virus uh, to kill the global cocaine crop. And uh, that seems to have been a possible motive for his murder. The argument that he might have been doing that because as a devout Nazi, he felt that uh, drugs and stimulants were bad sort of founders on the notion that the ardent Nazis were all full of drugs and stimulants were, for the whole war. <laughs> or whacked to the gill if the ardent Nazis <laughs> yes, were. So the question of who murdered Heinz Brucker, what Heinz Brucker was working on, what he took with him out of Lanark, and what he took with him out of the Ukraine have, as far as I know, never been satisfactorily answered. But the notion of targeted viruses to create famines, I know that that is a big thing in uh, the things that the communists blame the CIA for. Uh, they look at the actual things like Agent Orange being dumped on Vietnam, and they say, oh, the CIA is all about targeting people's crops. And that's why, by an odd coincidence, no communist country can ever grow a enough crops to feed its own people. It's those darn CIA guys always targeting crops, thanks to Heinz Brucker. Yes. What is the Sanskrit word for war? The yes. desire for more wheat. Right. I, I think that there is a perhaps more parsimonious explanation for communist famines than uh, CIA biological warfare. But we're not about parsimony. We are here. not about parsimony. That's, and that's for normal history. When you've got a Nazi biopirate from the Ananerba leading a mysterious South American exile life, uh, one, can, one can hardly complain that we must stick to Occam's razor in all of our dealings with him. Right. So we've got an obvious uh, entry point into our thinly fictionalized biopiracy campaign where it begins with his murder and the uh, agents of, uh, of whatever, the Delta Green or the Ordo Veritatis or whatever fits your designs for the direction of the campaign, uh, arrive on the scene in order to find out who murdered him. And you go from the murder investigation into a further set of clues that takes you further back in time to find out exactly what happened in 1943 and, you know, what exactly the seed was that uh, the whole fight was about. And maybe the reason that all of these people were willing to die, not for their country, but for their seed bank, was there might have been an influence of one of the seeds that perhaps it was not only uh, sapient in some way, uh, but... Uh, influenced people to protect it. And so the question is, what does the seed want? Uh, why did it have uh, Bruker finally killed? And what is the seed trying to do? Now, of course, you don't discover in scene one that you're hunting the uh, seed and its its influence, uh, you know, whether it's an ancient primordial seed that was uh, unearthed uh, after the Tunguska explosion or, uh, you know, an alien seed that has landed and is going to... Uh, you know, it's just waiting until all the conditions are right to start terraforming the earth. Uh, that gives you your uh, MacGuffin that takes you through all these different uh, layers. And if, uh, you know, people are wired into the post-Nazi apparatus and also into the communist apparatus, well, that's all sorts of different tradecraft organizations that could be involved. In. And once uh, the discovery is made that you're beginning to track down this long last uh, lost seed that is known you know, only by code names and all the different uh, intelligence agencies, dossiers. Well, guess who's going to come looking for you and looking to get the seed either from you or before you? Well, everybody else in the world, because they don't know what the seed does, uh, but they know it's powerful. So they want it. And uh, maybe you're the only person who's uh, safe to have it. Other possibilities for the seeds, of course, in uh, the classical world of monstrous plants include the triffids, whom uh, in the novel... Uh, were as assigned to light Lysenko, but in the novelette were the possible, were created by Nazi genetic engineering. So it could be Triffids that have a communist and a Nazi parentage working behind the scenes here. Or of course it could be Alrona, the famous, um, uh, mandrake root who is behind everything. And, uh, as, uh, uh, sort of another possibility on that frequency, uh, I have discovered, uh, that Lanark is in Austria specifically in Styria. So it's convenient to the Dracula's bride, a uh, Dolagan of Rots and 
possibly to Carmilla, also a vampire. Uh, not immediately relevant to plants, as far as I know, but, you know, that's up to you. I can't do everything for you people. Well, it's, it's obviously the blood seed. The blood seed, right. The bad blood seed. Right. And uh, since uh, what the blood seed does is self-explanatory, let's move on to another segment. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods! Runepunk Steam Quests! Lamb Chop Love Songs! And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian! All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like Phil Bailey, Daniel Dunlap, Hyperlexic, Jason Denon, and Frank King. The chutter of IBM Selectric keys, the gurgle of mid-shelf bourbon being poured into a tumbler, and the inability to come up with a decent way to say the name of this segment welcomes us once more to How to Write Good, where here we are learning to write good climactic sequences, and not stuff in the fiction that's about weather. That would be climatic sequences. Entirely yes. different thing. But climactic sequences, sequences... Yes, and, and also not in the erotica sense, involved, but in yes. the end of the story sense. Different kinds of climax. This is the end of the story climax. This would be an Aristotelian climax, not your uh, filthy other kind. No, yes, not, not your I never believed this would I'd be writing to you. I, I always believed that this fiction was metafiction until one day it happened <laughs> to me. Yes. I always thought this was written by staffers until... Until <laughs> I was hired to write it. When I realized it was written by underpaid freelancers. But we digress. We do. <laughs> so the secret to a great narrative is uh, assuming a uh, classical narrative that you want to have a uh, satisfying conclusion because, of course, there are certain forms of uh, circular narrative or experimental narrative where that's uh, not what you're on about. But let's say that you want to have a big satisfying ending. Here's how to get there. So the first thing that you want to do is remind yourself what story you're telling because of course the ending of a story is one that goes back and references the beginning of the story the uh opening of a story must rhyme with the ending and the way you know whether you're doing that is you remind yourself uh, first of all what the core question of your story is if the question is you know will hamlet ultimately become a man of contemplation or uh, a man of action the a bit where the uh, guy shows up and says, well, guess what? We're having a duel is the escalation point, the point that then forces him to make that decision once and for all and resolve uh, his story as a dramatic character who has two sides to him. Uh, you might also have a procedural hero. Uh, you might have an iconic procedural hero who basically recapitulates his core nature by resolving a disorder in the world and ending it. And so uh, that's a case where you get to the, uh, you have all the clues and now you gather everybody together into the, the parlor to reveal the name of the murderer and bring everything to a head. And so everything again starts to, to escalate. Or you might have a transformational procedural hero who's doing something external in the world, but through that it changes his nature. So, you know, someone who goes from 
Zero to Hero, this is the final moment where he uh, ultimately uh, achieves that transformation. So you have to remind yourself where you were. And then what you want to start to do is to clear the narrative decks. And so if you are writing a story and you, you've hit that escalation point where all of a sudden everything is going to uh, converge toward uh, your final resolution and you see that, oh, well, okay, I'm going to have to introduce a new character now to make this all make sense. Or I have to stop for a bunch of information or I guess, oh, I guess I have a final flashback here. If you have a story where the resolution of your story is that your hero finally remembers something and has a flashback, you see that sometimes. Uh, I'm recommending that that's not how to write good. (laughs) But I see it so often, Robin. Surely that's how to write good flashbacks or perhaps a lengthy lecture. That's the way to clear decks in my book. Right, exactly. And in Star Wars, which has one of the great classic movie endings of all time, there is a lecture that precedes the escalation point, right? There's a final refocus on the MacGuffin and the reason for the MacGuffin and all the setup occurs to explain why we're going to go and and shoot things at this uh, hole in the Death Star. But then once that happens, that's all out of the way. So you may even have a bit more explanatory material just right before that escalation point. But other than that, you're clearing the decks, getting everything out of the way in order to have uh, as much momentum as you can possibly have. Because everything in your story after your escalation point is going to be about getting to that ending. So you don't stop and have a, uh, a digression where you explore the theme of table manners in uh, Austrian society in 1908. If you really need to have a, a riff on table manners in 1908, you rip that out of where you thought you were going to put it and move it back further into your story on the other side of the escalation point, because everything is about uh, convergence. You have already uh, recapitulated the core question to yourself as you begin to write the narrative, and you very often build into your uh, story something that reminds the audience, the reader or the viewer, about what the core question is. And so again, you're signaling that everything is narrowing, and now my story has been about a bunch of things all coming together to this point, and now it's only about this one thing. And so again, uh, when they do the uh, Galaxy Far, Far Away PowerPoint presentation that shows you about the Death Star. It is, again, about restating the core question. Uh, you know, here, Luke, you have your chance to go from zero to hero, and here's what you need to do that. Here's all the information you need to go and finally become who we want you to become all along. And once you have got onto the other side of the escalation point, you also want to make sure that your scene transitions assuming it's not all just one big scene, which it can be depending on the form. You know, as soon as Hamlet shows up to that duel, that's the last scene. It's a big, long scene with a whole bunch of little mini scenes within it, but it's all in the same location. It's all, uh, you know, simultaneous uh, development in time. I'm working on a book, uh, as I've mentioned before, called uh, Beating the Story, which is about taking the uh, beat system devised in Hamlet's hit points and then uh, looking at it just in terms of running uh, straight-out stories rather than role-playing games. And one of the things that I developed in that, and we'll talk about again in more detail when the book is closer to publication, is the power of different scene transitions. And I talk about that a little now, uh, because the strongest transitions are the ones that you want to use as you develop the climax to your story. And so a uh, if you do have to switch scenes at all, you mostly want to stick to uh, what I call outgrowth transitions. And those are scenes where the thing that happens in scene B is the direct consequence of something that happens in scene A. So it's like, uh, we need to go and get the guns. Okay, in scene A, we get the guns. Now in scene B, we do something with the guns. Or, you know, less strong but still workable is a scene that has the same character in it doing something different or often particularly in a suspense film with an ensemble cast you will have uh, cutaways or what i call meanwhile transitions where you're moving back and forth between members of the same team they're in different physical locations but they're all working toward and furthering the same goal so that even so the you know the scene where janie finally releases the uh, the lock that allows uh, 
Jimmy and Steve to open the door and get through and charge the uh, uh, area where the where the plant pirates are. Uh, those two things still connect up and have strong momentum, even though they're in different physical locations. Nice callback, by the way. Yes, I'm trying to, trying to work everything in. As I've been clearing the deck and moving toward a resolution that answers all of our big questions. And so whatever the action of your climax is, uh, you want it to have that sense of momentum so that the audience feels that they are moving toward this big convergence. And then finally you get to the convergence and the story of the lead character or characters uh, resolves and the core question is answered. So the iconic hero uh, succeeds in restoring order and removing the threat. The procedural transformational hero uh, undergoes the shift from uh, zero to hero or from heel to altruist or, or whatever that is. Or the dramatic hero uh, resolves one way or the other, either keeping in balance or moving to one side or the other what their internal personal contradictions are. So that was a lot to uh, lay on <laughs> you, like, like a speech. That was a, that was a link. That was, um, you recapitulated the core question. I don't know if you cleared the decks per se. To what extent, let's go this direction, must a climax be reducible to Holmes v. Moriarty, Musketeers v. Uh, Richel you, what, what's the, does the climax have to come down to that moment of conflict or can a climax be something that is, that, that is less immediately, uh, narratively clear or narratively binary? Is, is there a climax in which, and suddenly everyone realized that they had been wrong all along? Is that a climax? What's, what's makes a, a climax a point as opposed to a line through, say, the uh, the third and between the third and fourth act of the novel. The climax can certainly be an epiphany, but something has to happen to bring about that epiphany. There has to be some sort of action, uh, and it can just be action in terms of talking and realization and even internal monologue. But the, you know, the, you see the green light across the bay, and you realize that your understanding of of the divine has been wrong all along, and so then you go and decide to uh, make amends or, you know, Scrooge after the third ghost visits him has this internal transformation and, and calls down on the street to get a goose delivered to tiny Tim or, or what have you. So it certainly doesn't have to be a physical conflict. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a overt conflict between two people. It can be an, an inner conflict that, uh, that can resolve and it can be sort of a delicate and, uh, and kind of hard to, to see, uh, but uh, it has to, there has to be some sort of change that brings about an, an answer to a core question. And I think that's, uh, so, you know, you can have an Eric Romare movie where, you know, people are just sort of talking at a, at a dinner party, but there's a, a realization on somebody's part and a change is made and that person has changed and, and the core question is answered. So once you've had a climax, where do you go from there? What happens how do you narratively move through a climax into the, uh, the, the last act of the resolution or the, or the, or the finish? Is there a, is there a best practice? Well, the, so, so you've had the finish. And so what's left is a denouement. So basically what you're looking for is a brief tag that indicates what the consequences of the change that occurred during your climax are. So if, uh, you know, if Batman has finally defeated the Joker you see the Joker being returned to Arkham Asylum, or you see Bruce Wayne uh, at the uh, art opening where the uh, paintings that the Joker wanted to set on fire are finally displayed, or uh, you see the uh, you know the, the defeated character who was unable to resolve the, his relationship with his uh, the tragedy in his hometown uh, returning uh, to uh, his his dreary existence, or or you know or Luke gets a medal, or uh, Fortinbras comes along and says, oh, well, okay, everything looks bad, but now that I'm in charge, uh, I guess uh, things are pretty good. Horatio, you're going to write this up? And Horatio says, yeah, okay. And, and then there's the, the eulogy or, or what have you. So it's all about... Horatio is such a Norse simp. Yes. And so you are getting out as quickly as you can while leaving a, uh, a sense of conclusion and a sense of emotional weight uh, to what has happened. Uh, again, if you are having to introduce new facts... Uh, this is often a flaw of mystery and mystery-ish narratives where 
all of a sudden the character then has to describe a bunch of narrative loose ends that explain things that went before. It's sort of part of the bargain of that style of book where you're engaged with the puzzle, but uh, quite often that makes it difficult to adapt to other media or, you know, just sort of explains the limitation of that form. So again, you want to, if if characters have to swap exposition in order for things that have already happened to make sense, uh, you might want to go back and see if you can possibly simplify all of those things, because the last thing you want uh, in your denouement is just sort of a laundry list of exposition after all of the emotional stakes have already been dealt with. So that brings up the question of the false climax, right? Because you talked about the murder mystery is the thing where you can't be introducing new things after the climax, but there's been plenty of murder mysteries, many of them great in which you get everyone in the room, you explain who did it. And then someone else dies in the next chapter. And you're like, Oh my God, I was wrong. Or the detective was wrong or that other detective was wrong, but I, the real detective now know enough to have the real climax. Um, this happens a lot in mysteries and I'm trying to separate it from things that are like series of novels or series of movies, because you could argue the destruction of the death star is the false climax of star Wars, because guess what? They got a whole new death star sitting off in the, uh, Endor system and they've got, uh, the revelations about, uh, Darth Vader to go through. And so there's a lot more movie going on in the star Wars universe, but in, but in fact, star Wars is actually a full and complete uh, movie, and there are just two more movies that come after it. Right. And that may give us a hint as to why every other follow-up to Star Wars is incrementally less satisfying. Well, except <laughs> for Empire, which is super satisfying and super great. Well, except it doesn't end. Yeah, well. It has no ending, not a movie. Right. But that's a whole different argument. It's a whole, that's a whole, whole different argument. Anyway, uh, we will talk about that topic later, but let's go back to the question of the false climax in the narrative, because for a false climax, you have to look like you're doing all the other stuff so that the reader, even though they can look and say, well, look, I've got half the novel to go. This can't be the climactic tank battle uncovering of bad guys, whatever it is. There's going to be more stuff happen, but you have to sort of fool the reader into believing that there's a climax. Is it just a matter of, Doing the same thing. Where do you introduce the part? Well, you, that you turns have to it- set up a core question that seems to be answered by one thing, and then it turns out, oh no, that wasn't. That's not the answer to the question at all. And aside from creating structural variety in a mystery novel, the question is, why is that satisfying to have that fake out occur? Because just sort of uh, laying a surprise uh, structure on people is not as interesting overall, I think, as as some people seem to feel. Just the way that a big twist ending that invalidates everything you've seen before and reveals that you're a mug because they gave you a fake core question and then at the end, oh no, it was this thing all along. And you know, actually yeah. actually Kevin Costner is the spy. Blah 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 you know blah, blah, blah. and uh you know it's easy to misdirect me if you cheat. Mm-hmm. Um and so a satisfying false climax is, uh, I think, probably better reconfigured as, you know, an act break earlier on that changes everything, uh, but that still has some continuity with what went before it. Otherwise, why did you have all of that other stuff? Yeah. And I think a lot of false climaxes are also working as act breaks. But another classic place that you see it is in sort of science fiction, where you set up what looks like the core story and what looks like the core question is, uh, let's say you're first contacting with some aliens and you go out and you have the whole arc of a novel that would be a full novel of first contacting with aliens. And then you meet the aliens and it turns out there's an even bigger question behind that. And that's, you know, your 2001, that's a whole bunch of different, uh, first contact stories turn out to be asking bigger questions than just what happens when we meet aliens. And so a lot of it is because the information needed to have the true climax can't happen until you've had that false climax, but it's not, it's different from an act break where, We're like, well, everyone knows we have to go find out what the aliens know in order to answer the mystery of human consciousness. No one knows that the mystery of human consciousness is even on the table at the beginning of the story. And it's only when you realize that the aliens are from our id or something that you're like, oh, my God, we have to uh, answer a whole different question. But we didn't even know we had the core question until we get through this this false climax to the to the first part of the story. Right. And I think often you can remedy that by conceiving the question in very general terms. So if the question is what's going on here, <laughs> um, which is a perfectly fine core question, uh, the uh, answer initially seems, Oh, it seems to be that there's aliens that we have to go in contact. And then you get to them and go, okay, well, you know, 
Uh, it's perfectly acceptable to have something muffled. If we just solve this problem, everything's over. And then you get to solve the problem. It's like, oh, no, we don't really know what's going on here until we then find out what this other, you know, pulsating whatever is. And so it can be a matter of making sure that you've framed your core question in the journey of the character, right? You you can't have, if you have a character where everything about them will be totally resolved if they just meet the aliens, and then they meet the aliens, and that character goes, okay, well, uh, secondary characters, it's on you now. You, you go be the protagonist. That doesn't work. But if that character still has a burning need to know what's going on, and the thing they thought was going to solve their problem just opens up another problem, that's that's an act break rather than a, a false climax. Because I think the, the key here is that the word, it has the word false in it. You probably mostly don't want to do that. Because if it's just trickery, uh, if it's just to throw the reader for a loop, uh, it's gratuitous. And guess what? Readers aren't there to be thrown for a loop in that way. They're there to be surprised within the bounds of what you've established. Uh, if you come at them, you know, completely, uh, you know, if you basically T-bone them narratively, uh, they're not going to thank you for that. And that is, uh, you know, generally not great construction. Well, on the general thought that the pulsating whatever is possibly my favorite Edward, Edward Gorey story, <laughs> we can now move on uh, because we have recapitulated the core question about three times, and I think that means we have hit our escalation point and must transition into another segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! It's time once more to meet the consulting occultists, but this time, unusually, we're not uh, heading up the cobweb stairs to wave at the portrait of Madame Lubotsky and then head on into the cozy parlor where he's sitting there waiting in his uh, cardigan, his smoking jacket. Uh, but rather, he's meeting us at the luggage carousel because Jacob Ansari, Patreon backer Jacob Ansari, wants the consulting occultist to tell us about the occult secrets, the well-known conspiratorial occult secrets of the Denver International Airport. There's all sorts of, of people who genuinely believe that the Denver Airport is a locus of Satanism or sinister globalism, or perhaps those are the same things, depending on which conspiracy uh, theorist you go to. Uh, there's certainly lots of weird decor and items, and once you start, the thing about pareidolia is once you start looking for it, you find it. So, uh, Ken, uh, what can you reveal about why people think the Denver International Airport is a locus of occult activity and or meaning. Um, I think that you can probably narrow it down to two reasons that Denver is the lucky winner of airport occultism. Maybe three. The first is that it is an airport. It's a huge public uh, structure that grew up as the Usenet and the Internet were fully coming to flower. It was under construction from the late 80s to the mid-90s. There was a huge delay, so it was a big controversy. It was in the news. It wound up being $2 billion over budget. The um, the baggage system failed repeatedly and was controversial throughout and was canceled. So it was always being in the news and being part of the story uh, right as the Internet is growing up. So it's just a lucky winner of a timing situation from that. A failing baggage system is always a sign of some, some deeper meaning. Some deeper meaning. Well, in this case, it was going to be a computer-controlled baggage system that was going to run the whole airport. And so I think people sort of twigged on that HAL 9000 moment. And sure enough, if you gave it to United Airlines, it was screwed up. And indeed it was. <laughs> yes, we, we need the occult to explain why airlines are screwed <laughs> yeah. up. 
He sure do. Um, the other thing is that just by luck, the layout of the runways at DIA looks kind of like a swastika. And you can't get around that. It kind of does. Now, it's a swastika right. with two southern arms. So it's not quite a swastika, but it's swastika-er than most air- airports look. And so you just have a big old swastika on the ground. People are going to read meaning into that. And uh, that was true in the 90s, just as it is today. The third reason that I believe that the DIA is the lucky winner of Conspiracy uh, International Airport is that it put a huge amount of its budget, comparatively, into public art. And so most airports are hideous and designed to be hideous. A few airports are architectural marvels. I'm thinking I'm looking at you, Charles de Gaulle, which is gorgeous. Um, but most airports are just like they're a million times worse than the train stations they've replaced. They're, they're nightmares. They combine everything bad about transit and government into one thing. Yeah. The, the Vancouver airport has some particularly beautiful public art right. by uh, the native artist Bill Reed, but the public art at the Denver airport is very striking. It'd be crazy, <laughs> including an enormous, very anatomically correct blue horse. With sinister red eyes. Yes, which the statue, Blue Mustang, uh, fell and killed the artist. And so that, I think, is one of those things that will get the attention of the standard conspiracy punter, is when your enormous blue horse topples over and kills the artist. So that is a, uh, I mean, right there, that's, you, you can't help that. Uh, another thing that sort of makes DIA special is that the Freemasons had something to do with it being built and there, and they put a Freemason time capsule in it to be unsealed in 2094, the centenary of what they thought was going to be the opening of the airport. It was actually opened in 1995. See previous discussion. And unfortunately, the, uh, or perhaps fortunately, the name under which the Freemasons operated the, uh, time capsule was the New World Airport Commission, which is just that close to New World Order. Yes. Well, they, they didn't want to call it, we're just messing with you. Mm-hmm. So that would have been too, that, too, on, too the on the nose. Too manifest. You only make sort of manifest that which is hidden. Yes. It's, it's not a cult if it's in plain view. So when you got a swastika, you've got, a mur- you've got murderous art. You've got um, uh, the, 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 the timing of it being on the internet. Right. And, oh, and we've got the murals. A, a, um, a Masonic time capsule. That will get you started. And the murals, yes. Let's talk about the murals. Uh, by an artist named Leo Tenguma. Uh, and uh, basically, the they tell a narrative of uh, children achieving peace against the backdrop of atrocities committed by man. But the atrocities catch the eye <laughs> much like much much <laughs> like in the entire history of art <laughs> yeah in, in, a, in a way no one ever the, painted uh, saint anthony sitting quietly and writing yeah it's so always the, the uh the the stormtrooper with the the giant stormtrooper with the bayonet is possibly more memorable than the it's a small world children all sort of all gathered together uh and this uh, artist has you know been forced over the years to give various interviews and try to reassure people that there's no you know that it's a positive message and so there are gargoyles in it as well yeah, not in gargoyles. the art but i mean there's actual gargoyles sitting in the airport uh, there are uh names in native languages incised in the uh, floor so if you're uh only used to seeing english words in the floor of an airport uh, you can decide that uh you know the the uh perfectly ordinary uh native language navajo uh, words, words Na- navajo words are uh, somehow sinister. <laughs> and you can certainly say, uh, as your proper conspiracy theorists do, that sure, they're real Navajo words, but they also are coded mentions of the reptoids or whatever. Because the other right. thing that they talk about is because of the general con- uh, controversy of any public construction now of why did you build it here? Why did you build it now? Why didn't I get any money? Uh, is the why did you replace Stapleton with this brand new airport, which isn't any bigger? And the reason is it's farther away from Denver, so you can actually run Denver properly. But that's a boring answer. And the more fun answer is because they built it to cover up building the headquarters of the one world government or the reptoids or the whoever they are underneath it. And so the building the airport is just the cover up for building the underground complex underneath your swastika runways. Right. And that's where the extra $2 billion went. It wasn't just wasted by incompetent government people. It was, in fact... Ch- funneled into tunnels uh, by the secret government. Right. So the the whole failing baggage system is just a, a front for uh, why there are really tunnels underneath. And that's so that the uh, 
the Bilderbergers or uh, or the, the the Owl Society or whoever can then uh, hide out underneath. Right. So so we've got a lot of crossover here between Conspiracy Corner and Consulting Occultist and the Liptony Hut. Uh, so it's not even clear which segment this airport uh, properly uh, fits into, but it's uh, um, definitely a, a target for a conspiracy. And uh, so I guess the question is, uh, given the conspiratorial uh, bent of uh, your current administration in, in the White House, can you, uh, can you expect the airport to be uh, shut down so that uh, good, honest people can be protected from the, the lizard people or whoever? I suspect that as long as Colorado is a swing state, letting Alex Jones shut down its airport is not on the map. <laughs> but um, uh, that, you know, who can say if it ever goes reliably blue, um, yes. anything the, can the, happen. The old political statement, we can't rule anything out. It's never been true. Never been truer. Uh, I should also mention that in 2007, 14 separate airport windshields blew in or airplane windshields blew in, uh, which was blamed by the, the sheeple, by the mm, uh, lamestream media on high winds, but is actually, of course, testing earthquake machines or EMPs or uh, mind control rays or something. And again, that's a pretty eye-catching sort of a thing to happen in an airport. 14 airplane windshields uh, explode. That'll that'll make the news, and I think that'll cause people who are worried about invisible rays anyway to pay more attention to your airport. There's a uh, Hill Folk series pitch by our mutual pal Hal Mangold uh, called Terminal X, which is set in the Denver airport. And the idea there is that the secret sorcerers of the world uh, kind of use it as a neutral ground meeting point, that it's so incredibly numinous that no one can gain complete control of it except for the order of people who are, uh, you know, supposed to guard the place so that the characters you play are the airport staffers who are there to make sure that this um, hub of neutrality uh, remains okay and that nobody takes over. Or is it? Are you finally going to be able to all get together, take over? Or are you just... Uh, so it's a, a fun uh, premise for, uh, you know, a uh, an airport set a campaign of uh, emotional entanglement and uh, and intrigue in which it's very easy to have, you know, the non-player character guest of the week show up at the airport and uh, wreak havoc and then and then uh, leave again or be back there again whenever you need them because, of course, uh, they might be a frequent traveler who has to go through Denver all the time. And if you are a sorcerer, uh, you arrange for uh, uh, your layover to be in Denver because it's probably recharging, if, if nothing else. So is there, uh, are there other, uh, obviously any modern day, uh, occult or conspiracy game, uh, could use the airport as, uh, if not necessarily a permanent location, uh, somewhere where, you know, you discover that, oh, the only flight that we can book is through, through Denver. Right. And it might be the opposite, right? That your, uh, occult powers may be, uh, sapped away from you if you, uh, especially if you use the, if you recharge your phones at Denver, you know, that, you're, you're in trouble. That's all your mana for the week. And, and one of your um, uh, problems with any airport in Denver is that high snow can, can shut it down. They've actually finally budgeted for proper snow removal. Uh, so it happens less often than it used to at Stapleton. But for a while, high snows would shut down DIA. So it makes a great bottle episode for your conspiracy game is that you got the last flight into Denver ahead of this storm front and you've landed. And now the storm is coming in. And now you're sort of doing the shining in DIA with the, with the fun... Uh, astronaut standing around with his gold helmet. He's not just any old fun astronaut. He's uh, a famous fun astronaut. Uh, Jack Swigert, an elected congressman who died before being sworn in. He was also on Apollo 13. So he has uh, many exciting uh, things that you can already tie into him. And his statue is there in the airport holding a gold helmet, which of course is, uh, you know, that should set you on fire just in terms of you put your head into it and you get Jack Swigert's last thoughts or you get you know, briefed by the cosmic masters or, or, or you inhale the, the vampire seed or, or whatever it is that happens. Right. And if you arrive there and you're snowed in and of course, all of your weapons, uh, you've had to check them in your, yes, you uh, have your stowed baggage. And so there you are, and there's your enemies and you've all been disarmed and, uh, you know, you have to hang out at the Starbucks together mm -hmm. and maybe you negotiate. The Cinnabon. Yeah, there you go. The occult Cinnabon. <laughs> yes. The, the occult Cinnabon. It's, uh, uh, 20% more diabetic than the regular Cinnabon. Wow. 
<laughs> that that would explain its uh, evil power then. I think that's what knocked out all the windshields. That may have been, the, may have been the occult the cinnabon. cinnabon. Um, so yeah, there's there, one of the things about a lot of these postmodern conspiracies, like Denver Airport, is that it contains multitudes. So whatever your game is about, you can probably type the core word of that and Denver International Airport in and come up with web pages upon web pages by dedicated crazy people that will provide you with your link. So like we said, the, the Satanists can do it. The Reptoids can do it. The Bilderbergers, whoever it is, whoever your bad guy is, someone has already uh, put them in one of the terminals at uh, DIA. That could also be a feature is that it could be continually flipping uh, control from uh, different organizations who are all plausible beneficiaries of its power. So you, it's like, uh, I got a book of flight in a couple months, but I don't know whether it'll be the reptoids of the men in black who are in control in the airport. And, you know, I'm in okay terms of the men in black, but if it's the reptoids, that's going to be Then we're dicey. in real trouble. Yeah. It's like, oh, I could do that or O'Hare. Oh, yeah. O'Hare. Not, so, okay. Not, yeah. Okay. All right. Got to go Denver. Reptoids. <laughs> yeah. DIA. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of uh, travel plans, I think uh, our layover in this particular uh, series of huts is at an end, and it's time for us to board our flights. But never fear, dear listeners, we'll be back next week with a, a brand new podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Relax in the airport lounge alongside such travelers as... Ruth Tillman. Andrew Cowie. JC Toodles. Yaj from Edinburgh. And Nikolai Hansen. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.